southern skies, trees bearing fruit. Steel gray clouds pepper the ground with rain. Blood on the leaves and blood on the root. A pastor sings a solemn dirge. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. And people remember Snakes the Newberry Six. Hanging from the poplar tree. This was the scene on Friday morning as the city of Newberry held its soil collection ceremony. 82-year-old Gwendolyn Hunt and her husband moved to Newberry in the 70s. They bought a few acres of land and oak trees with the little money they had. They had never heard of the Newberry Six. I was told, was told about it through a neighbor that I went to see when she was down sick because I love helping taking care of people. The neighbor told her to look for a rock that would mark the tree on her property where six innocent black people were lynched in 1916. Over a hundred years later, the city of Newberry is finally recognizing this gruesome past. Kiana West is a justice fellow at the Equal Justice Initiative. We know that we will never know the total amount of victims who were lynched, and we may not know everybody's names, but we do think it's important that we can memorialize those who we do know, and also symbolically those um, whose names we may never know. Here is the fruit. Two jars of soil were filled for each victim of the Newberry Six. One of each set will make their way to Montgomery, Alabama to sit among dozens of similar jars in the EJI Legacy Museum. For Hunt, this ceremony means a lot, but the work will never be over. Like the officer put the knee down on the man, make, and make it reflect back to what this is. We, we have come from a long ways, but darling, we got a long ways yet to come. And for those people whose lives are still affected by Newberry's past, the hope for clearer skies remains. Kristen Moorhead, WUFT News. Keto peaches, no speak. Keto peaches, come, come. Bernie Durrell lets his three dogs have free range on his 10-acre property in Weirsdale, Florida. But after heavy rains, some of that land is underwater. Durrell says just five years ago, the lake between his property and his neighbors was completely dry. Now, it's about five feet deep. The rural neighborhood has asked for help from the local water board in dealing with rainwater, but residents haven't heard back from officials. Homeowners Association and making decisions, you know, has no, um, they don't have any input from the St. John's Water Management District, so. We do the best we can. Darrell bought his home from HUD in 2019 when floodwaters were the highest he's seen on the property. In Florida, about 12% of homes sold by HUD were in federal flood zones. These properties are being sold in the middle of a housing crisis where median home prices outside flood zones are steadily rising. James Jowitz, a University of Florida professor of landscape hydrology, says we have two options to address human settlements in flood zones either retreat out of these areas or armor our structures. The latter is more common. Cities across the country build levees and divert rivers to protect the homes there. Jawitz says the choice to build and live in these vulnerable areas is usually up to the discretion of individual states. 
you'll see some states, some communities where you can build in a wetland, you can build next to a river, and you know nobody's going to stop you uh, uh, until your house is flooded and you come to screaming to the government for some reimbursement. But as climate change worsens the range and frequency of flood zones, these areas are becoming riskier to call home. Jack Prater, WFT News. Black students, faculty, and community members are celebrating the impact of the University of Florida's first black students. UF installed a historical marker near Bryan Hall about its history with racism and integration. The marker tells the story of four people, including Virgil Hawkins, a black man who was denied entry into UF's law school. After being rejected from UF based on his race, Hawkins was part of an NAACP lawsuit against the University of Florida. The suit reached the Supreme Court in 1956, where it was ruled that UF could not legally deny black students' admission. Hawkins's great-nephew, Michael Doctor, says Hawkins paved the way for black students like himself. I got here in 1973 on his shoulders. I was a freshman in, in Talbert Hall, so he paved the way. UF President Kent Fox says he hopes that this is a reminder to non-black students about the university's history with marginalized people. For the rest of us, uh, it really is important to know that history, that this university uh, did not always have uh, students that were black, students of color, uh, did not always have women, um, and it wasn't long ago. According to Fox, this is only one of the first of the university's steps towards making the campus as diverse as the state of Florida itself. Sydney Dotson, WUFT News. When I was moving in, I had my roommate come in, you know, being the friendly guy that I am, I turn around, hi, my name is Joe. That's Joseph McLeod, a former University of Florida student in a 2009 interview from the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. And I held out my hand to shake his hand. He looked at me, turned around, never saw the guy again. This is 1971 and McLeod is discussing an interaction in a time when racial tensions were high. Black students were outnumbered, 343 to 20,000 white. McLeod says that disparity in population contributed to the Black Student Union's push for their rights. We got together, had meetings over a period of time, and came up with a set of demands, one for the university to recruit more Black students to open the Institute of Black Culture to recruit more black faculty, and there were maybe four or five other demands that we had. On April 15, 1971, students went to Tiger Hall to talk with then-President Stephen C. O'Connell about these demands. Another student, Betty Stewart Fullwood, says they tried three times to have a conversation. I was just drawn to it because it was so relevant at the time. Carl Smart joined because he wanted to fight for minority rights and improve the campus. It wasn't as confrontational, maybe, as it appeared. Just it's time to make this statement and time for people to listen up. Gwen Francis, another student, says the administration wasn't having it. We had a sit-in, and we sat in his office, probably maybe for about 45 minutes, and he proceeded to have us arrested. So the buses came, and they took us all down to the Lachua County Jail. Over 60 students were arrested or suspended, Smart says it was a difficult experience. Very frightening is all I recall. It was scary, but we were all there together, so it was helpful. They got out that same day, but the campus community wasn't satisfied and called for amnesty for those suspended and arrested. O'Connell refused, stating it would show the sit-in was acceptable conduct. 
This denial led over 100 black students and supporters to withdraw from the university. Fullwood was one of them, but came back after a semester or two and graduated. When she arrived, she noticed a shift had occurred as O'Connell and the administration warmed to change. That fall term is when we had more African-American faculty and staff to be recruited to come on, and I'm sure there were more students that were admitted as well. It has been 50 years since that fateful April 15th, but with nearly a year of racial unrest nationally, a lurking question is how far the university has come in improving the Black student experience. Malia Leiden, WUFT News. In August, the New York Times reported that while the rate of white homeownership rose to a record high of 73 percent in 2019, black homeownership has declined for much of the past 20 years. Black homeownership was 42 percent in 2019, a rate as low as it was in 1970. When they lose this land, they're losing wealth. And that has multi-generational consequences. Florida State professor and African-American studies program director Patrick Mason says for black families, the major form of wealth is in land, real estate, and owning homes. To this day, the primary form of wealth among African-Americans is home ownership. So that, for example, in the 2008, 9, 10 Great Recession, it I mean, that, that, that recession hurt people across income classes, across races, but there was something like a 50, 60 percent reduction in the wealth of African-Americans due to that recession. Mason himself was born on the property where he now lives, a piece of land passed down by his ancestors. He said his family has a deep attachment to the land. So sometimes people come out, family members come out just to walk around, take a look. Yeah, it's, it's a place, it's, it's, it's your spot on the planet. Joan Flox is the director for the Social Policy Division Center for Governmental Responsibility at the University of Florida's Law School. It's a social justice issue because it tends to disproportionately affect low-income families and families of color. In 2018, Phlox and two of her students published a study in the Florida Bar Journal that shows the pattern of heirs' property in Alachua County. It did show that there's more heirs' properties in certain low-income neighborhoods, working-class neighborhoods, uh, uh, historically uh, black neighborhoods, um, and that those heirs' properties existed more in those types in those neighborhoods than in others. Sandra Thompson is a program leader focusing on heirs' property and rural community resource development at Florida A&M University. She says many families with heirs' property are put in a rigid position that's hard to get out of. Families without the resources or without the agreement that find themselves in the position of owning heirs' property are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, They own it, but they can't really do anything with it. They want to clear the title, but the cost of clearing title is too expensive, so they can't do that. So what ends up happening, they stay in a vulnerable position. Thompson says families' vulnerability to predatory land buyers and developers is key to understanding how heirs' property has caused black people to lose so much land. Thompson was also part of a group that in 2020 helped to pass a Florida law meant to protect families with heirs' property called the Uniform Petition Heirs' Property Act. The law honors owners' sentimental attachment to the property, including ancestral connections and other unique or special relationships. 
Under the law, all family members also need to be given a chance to come together and plan how they want to deal with the heir's property issue, making them less likely to be victims of developer agendas. It gives due process to families where they all need to be notified that and given time to develop an estate plan so that familiar connection to the land can be protected. Jamie Coleman, an attorney with Williams and Coleman in Tallahassee, also worked to get the heirs' property law passed. I'm now more excited about counseling people when it comes to the partitions, um, you know, and being strategic on how we, we deal with those issues. And because it protects people's property rights, it also keeps people in homes. It also helps with affordable housing. It just touches on so many issues. Now it's about making sure families understand heirs' property, how it can impact them, and what resources are available for them. Sandra Thompson says her office at FAMU is dedicated to that mission. Now the critical piece is we've still got to do a lot of outreach to let families know this, um, that this particular legal provision is available. Similar uniform partition laws have been passed in 18 states. The 2018 federal farm bill provided incentives, including relending programs for states who passed the law, but the Trump administration did not implement those programs. This summer, the USDA announced that it will provide $67 million for loans through the heirs' property relending program. The funds are intended to protect heirs' property and allow owners to access USDA programs and services. The program also gives the Biden administration a chance to deliver on one of its campaign promises to protect heirs' property. Sky LeBron, WUFT News. Catching you up on the latest stories from around the Sunshine State that you should know heading into this Tuesday morning. I'm Malia Leiden, and this is The Point from WUFT News. Opinions on how diverse Florida is may be formed by where you live. I spoke with the tributaries Andrew Pantazzi about a new tool using 2020 census data showcasing the state's racial diversity and segregation. Florida is becoming more diverse, which I think I and most people expected to see in here. But I think what's really stark when overlaying it on the map like this is how much the built environment affects how that diversity plays out, that we still have a lot of um, overwhelmingly white neighborhoods or overwhelmingly black neighborhoods that are starkly segregated. And particularly when you follow along interstate and state highways and how they serve to separate different neighborhoods, regardless of where you are in Florida, that I think this seems to be true. You know, it's true in the major cities like Jacksonville, Orlando, St. Petersburg, but it's also true even in smaller cities. And then the other, I think, you know, finding that's really important to see in a, in a mapped form is in rural Florida, how much an impact the prison populations make in artificially making certain counties seem more diverse than they are because their diversity is being driven by the incarcerated population as opposed to people who live there freely. And can you explain a bit about what you may have noticed regarding Gainesville's racial makeup? I saw it seemed heavily white near the University of Florida. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you see is you can kind of see where the luxury apartments are and where student housing is on campus, which is much wider 
Then when you get to Archer Road and when you're south of Archer Road, you get to some of the housing there. I think you can also see where some of the grad student housing is because it tends to have a larger Asian population than the other student housing that's on campus. And I think that's also true for some of the, you know, you see, I think, some more diversity in where the married student housing is versus, again, you can kind of identify some of the whiter undergraduate housing that's on campus um, or the luxury housing that's close to campus by university or by 13th. Did you notice any elements of kind of segregation in Gainesville as compared to other places? Yeah, definitely. And again, I don't know, sometimes it's not surprising because people already know it, but it's still shocking to see on a map. And so in Gainesville, you get the east side, which is overwhelmingly African-American versus the rest of Gainesville, which is much whiter. And so you look and when you get to Waldo Road, cutting across anything east of Waldo Road, and really it's, you know, once you get to east of Main Street, you see a lot more neighborhoods that are near nearly 100% Black or African American in Gainesville. And I think that also reflects when you look at some of the student populations looking at um, Eastside uh, versus Gainesville High School, but it shows how much this far after the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and other important civil rights legislation has passed, there's been either no integration in some of our communities or even the opposite. We're actually seeing more segregation in some communities than we had 60 years ago. And what shocked you the most when you saw all of this information on a map and were putting it together? I think a lot of people understand how complicated Florida is as a population, because unlike some other states like Iowa or, you know, any number of other states where when you you mention the state, you have an image in your head of what that means. In Florida, if you live in Pensacola versus Jacksonville versus Tampa versus Orlando versus Miami versus Naples, like depending on where you live, you have a very different view of what it means to live in Florida. And I think that's also true racially, whether you're talking about rural farm workers in Southwest Florida who tend to be more migrants, more Hispanic, or identifying as some other race, or whether you're in Miami, which is overwhelmingly Hispanic with in pockets of Dade County that have large Black populations, or the closer you get to the beach and waterfront property where it gets whiter. You see, I think just a lot of these, how much if you live in one neighborhood, you might think that everybody looks like you. And if you live in another neighborhood, you might think differently. And so it really, what this segregation does is I think it limits people's views of of how diverse Florida actually is and how many challenges we have when designing systems for how to deliver to people where they live. Because if the people who are in power or designing different systems, whether that's public health or vaccines or any number of other things, live in one neighborhood. They have a very starkly different view than someone who might live somewhere else, especially when we get to those neighborhoods that are cut off by interstates or highways that have affected the, the transportation of those communities. That was the tributaries, Andrew Pantazzi, on a tool exploring Florida's racial diversity and segregation. Go to jackstrib.org for more information.
Now, let's get into some other top headlines. Nearly 14 million Floridians so far are vaccinated against the coronavirus. According to the Florida Department of Health, this is 73 percent of the state's population. The CDC's COVID-19 data tracker shows that Lafayette, Hamilton, and Volusia counties have the highest levels of transmission in the state, with more than 100 new cases per 100,000 people in the last week. This information was published on October 24th. Florida is tied for the highest gas jump nationwide. According to Main Street Daily News, the state's gas prices rose 14 cents in the last week, tying with North Carolina for the largest jump. Florida's average stands at $3.31 a gallon. The state still remains below the nationwide average of $3.38, a six-cent increase from last week. A federal appeals court rejected a lawsuit yesterday involving a decades-long fight to remove North Florida's Rodman Dam and restore the Oklawaha River. The News Service of Florida reports that a three-judge panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the Florida Defenders of Environment. The group argued that the state lacked a permit to operate part of the dam in the Rodman Reservoir in the Ocala National Forest. Also, the U.S. Forest Service should require removal of the dam. However, the appeals court upheld a 2019 decision pointing to the federal agency's discretion in determining whether to remove the dam. Subscribe to The Point newsletter which drops the latest Florida stories into your inbox every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Visit wuft.org for more information. I'm Malia Leiden, and you've been listening to The Point from WUFT News out of the University of Florida. Have a great day. It's hot. It's manual labor. Sean Hamilton is a welder. And sometimes you ain't got no time to get in no shade. You're standing in the middle of a desert while all the trees is cut down trying to weld stuff back together. It's hot. Hamilton says getting home after work is a relief, but most days he barely gets to put his feet up before needing to leave the house again. There's barely any working internet in his home, but his kids have schoolwork that needs to be submitted online. That means anytime his kids need to do schoolwork online, they hit the road. They got to do homework, we got to go all the way back to Cross City. The nearest consistent internet connection, Hamilton says, is in Cross City, the largest municipality in the rural county about half an hour away. When they find a place to connect to Wi-Fi, Hamilton waits for his kids to finish up. I work all day in the sun, in the heat, get home, got to go all the way back to town and sit in my vehicle for about two or three hours while they get their homework done. Hamilton says having no internet at home doesn't bother him much since he grew up in the area, which has never had consistent internet. But with the COVID-19 pandemic turning nearly everything, including school, virtual for months, the problem has seen a brighter spotlight. Rural areas like this, this is, this is country. Welcome to it. The internet sucks. Yes, it does. It, it boxes. You can't get stuff done what you need to get done. Many Dixie County residents deal with similar issues. If they need to find a spot to get online, a popular location is the Dixie County Library. Come by early in the mornings, there'll be people sitting in the parking lot using the Wi-Fi. Early, before daylight. Cindy Bella is the director of the library. And then late at night, you see them pull up. And this little glow in there, so you could tell in their vehicle, so you could tell they were on a computer or laptop or, or their phone using the internet. 
However, Bellot says the library isn't the perfect solution. When too many people are using it, it can cause an overload and crash, which affects the library's ability to check out books. Rural internet access continues to be an issue for millions in the United States and in Florida. According to research from the Pew Institute, 1.5% of people in urban areas of Florida are without consistent internet. That number is more than 19% of the population for rural areas, or one in every five people. John and Caleb Lancaster are both from Dixie County. They know firsthand what living in a rural area and trying to get schoolwork done online is like. John Lancaster is now a student at Florida Polytechnic University in Lakeland. He says if he thinks about going back home to Dixie County for a visit, he has to get all of his homework done ahead of time. In college, I did come down a couple times just to visit, but I'd have to make sure to do my work for that weekend or those days prior. Otherwise, I would end up missing assignments or stuff because I couldn't get online to watch videos or do the work. Caleb is still in high school in Dixie County. He says during the height of the pandemic, he was consistently dealing with connection issues. If you're like trying to do your schoolwork in a certain amount of time, like you're doing a quiz and the teacher gives you like 30 minutes to do it, and you get like halfway done, your internet stops and you have to redo the whole thing because it kicked you off and logged you out. Apart from schoolwork, both John and Caleb say they also struggle to access the internet when they're just trying to watch videos, play video games, or talk with their friends online. John says the issue has made him rethink living in his hometown once he grows up, despite loving the freedom that comes with the countryside. In a rural community, you don't have as many restrictions. In a large town with like skyscrapers and stuff, you can't just fire off fireworks whenever you want, or you can't do stupid things like that. <laughs> But out here, you have way more freedom to experiment. So I think that the internet is definitely probably the biggest thing holding me back in terms of staying here and seeking the future. The migration of young people to places with more economic opportunity, sometimes called brain drain, can happen for a number of reasons. In north central Florida, local officials are worried the lack of internet access might push young people away from the rural area. But Becky Rollerson, a school board member in Union County for the past decade, and others in rural communities believe that the positives still heavily outweigh the negatives. Rollerson admits that internet access is an issue facing many students and school staff in her district, but the region makes up for it with its closely knit communities. It's kind of interesting, and you kind of have to live there to really live it, breathe it, and understand it. But there is a certain amount of tradition in a rural county, and that tradition and that pride exists outside of a lot of issues such as internet access. Rollison says she's working with the school board to determine stronger internet options in the county going forward in order to mitigate the issue. Stephen Clark is principal of Lafayette Elementary School in Lafayette County, which is one of the state's smallest, most rural counties between Gainesville and Tallahassee. Clark says most of the students don't have consistent internet access at home. You get two miles outside, it's going to be sporadic at best. So I would say 75% of my county does not have good, reliable internet, internet for something like us streaming a video for instructional purposes. Clark says the district considered giving hotspots to parents, but because many of them also lack cell signal at home, the solution wouldn't have been effective. Pam Mosley teaches at Lafayette Elementary School and won 2021 District Teacher of the Year. 
She says the lack of internet in the district also impacts employees. I can't do any work at home. I take If I take my computer home, it's just for the ride. I, don't, I can't use it. But Mosley and Clark say even with the region's internet struggles, they're not worried about an exodus of young people from rural areas. And I th- that's just the sacrifice of living in this fantastic place. <laughs> Because we know there's, I mean, that we are definitely not staying here because of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so point. even though we don't have it, it's not a big deal. Would we like better, more live oh, water yet? Internet, yes. Absolutely, but, but it's not a game changer. With the pandemic subsiding and many classrooms returning to in-person learning this past fall semester, the need for consistent internet to do schoolwork has shrunk. However, it has put a magnifying glass on issues that local, state, and federal officials are hoping to tackle with recently passed legislation aimed at getting funding for broadband into the hands of local government. Sky LeBron, WUFT News. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Finally, we bring you a story from Lowell Correctional Institution. Lowell is a place fraught with controversy. One prisoner is working to shine a light on what she calls corruption in the system in an unusual way by making TikTok videos. Producer Ariana Aspuru spoke with WUFT reporter Katie Heisen about this woman's incredible story. So the focus of your story is an incarcerated woman in Lowell Correctional Institution named Keiko Kopp, who was taken in on drug-related charges. What can you kind of tell me about her? Keiko's a mother of four. She grew up in Niceville in the Panhandle. She's 32. Um, She would tell you that she understands that um, she did a crime and that incarceration is the punishment for that crime. But when she arrived at Lowell, she realized in her words how corrupt the system was and how poor the conditions were, especially for the pregnant women there. So she started creating these news broadcasts that she puts onto TikTok, talking about what's going on inside the prison. Um, And the account has over 8 million views at this point. Hey, this is Kay coming from Los Seattle Prison News with the Dave's or Starcast Black Coffee. So I wanted to go ahead and answer some questions. I am in prison in Florida. This is a 30-second recorded video. And is that how you came across the story? Did you find it on TikTok? I did. And I, when I realized it was Lowell, Lowell has gained a lot of attention in recent years for um, reports of abuse of the women there. Um, and I thought what she was doing was pretty remarkable. And the, the style of creating news broadcasts from inside the prison where she's incarcerated was really bold. And so I reached out to her and we started talking over the phone and emailing. And I realized that her story went a lot deeper than could fit into a 60-second TikTok. And so that's really where my reporting began. Mm-hmm. So she posted these videos on TikTok through her mother, Kathy, who posts them on her account. I think the account is called at News. Tell me about some of the content she posts. You said there was a deeper story in that. What does she kind of talk about? She talks a lot about conditions inside Lowell. She describes um, sick calls as going weeks without response and the women incarcerated there caring for each other um, without receiving proper medical care. She describes a lack of um, hygiene products necessary that would help prevent sickness, things like hand soap or cleaner. Um, She says that they're not being tested for COVID even though there have been a lot of hospitalizations and deaths in Florida prisons from COVID. Mm-hmm. And going into how she got there, in December of 2020, we learned that she discovered she was pregnant. And then 
the January after that, she was sentenced to a minimum of three years in prison. She was first sent to Walton County Jail, and then there were staff arranging her medical appointments and supplemental nutrition, just like the Florida law requires for pregnant incarcerated women. How did her experience sort of change when she went to Lowell? She describes a pretty drastic change. Um, I spoke not just with Keiko, but other women who are incarcerated there now, as well as women who were previously incarcerated at Lowell. They say that the pregnant women there did not receive any supplemental nutrition until June. It was weeks before she received prenatal vitamins. And a lot of this, um, I was able to obtain copies of grievance reports she submitted. Um, complaining about these conditions and requesting proper medical care, but a lot of them were denied or returned. Mm -hmm. And bouncing off of that, tell me about some of the complications she faced during her pregnancy. So Keiko, um, when she finally did receive an ultrasound, they discovered her baby had anencephaly. That's a condition that would have already developed before she was sentenced and always ends in death of the child. Um, but Keiko wanted to do everything she could to prolong the pregnancy and give her baby a chance at surviving birth. So she declined their offer to induce early labor, which would have, have killed the baby. It's really key to understand that there's nothing that could have been done to change the outcome of anencephaly. But what's at question here is the care she received as an incarcerated pregnant woman and the care the other pregnant women are also receiving. So from your reporting, she delivered in June. And can you tell me a little bit about that experience? She describes 30 hours of very intense, painful labor with ongoing contractions. But she said the staff told her she was not in labor and it was just pressure from the water weight. So for much of what she said was her labor, she was left alone without observation. At one point, she was left in an open-doored cell by herself overnight um, with uh, bleeding and urinating on herself. Her water wasn't breaking. It was really horrific. Um, and she said, she describes it as that she lost her mind in that cell. And it was not until the next day that they checked her and ended up calling an ambulance that took her to deliver at a hospital. So the delivery did um, end in her baby's death. And before 24 hours had passed, and this is common, I'm hearing from incarcerated women that um, she was handcuffed and led back to her regular bunk without a recovery period or even being taken to medical. And did you get any response during your reporting from the Lowell Correctional Institution? Florida Department of Corrections declined to comment on Keiko's experience in particular, citing medical privacy, though they knew that she was willing to sign a HIPAA release. They did say that ensuring adequate medical care is a top priority for them. Mm -hmm. In your reporting, you spoke to multiple different uh, incarcerated women, and you also mentioned that there's little data when it comes to pregnancies among these incarcerated women. What do we know about their experience? I mean, has there been any studies of it? Do we have any data we can look at? Documentation is sparse. There are two studies that show that about three to five percent of women are pregnant when incarcerated. Because the number of incarcerated women has risen, that's an increasing number of babies carried and delivered behind bars. 
I think a key point to keep in mind is that black women and women of lower socioeconomic status face much higher rates of incarceration, pregnancy loss, infant mortality, and maternal mortality. And there is research showing that these issues are likely connected. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to solutions, what are some of the things being talked about to bring aid or justice to these wrongfully treated incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people? It's an issue that is coming back into attention of media and of state legislators. Representative Yvonne Hayes Henson has been visiting Lowell to check on the women and trying to work with prison administration directly to get especially better nutrition as a starting point. She's also planning to propose legislation that would allow pregnant women to delay incarceration until after birth and have them at home on an electronic monitoring system of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I guess until then, what kind of happens? Is COP still posting videos on, on TikTok? The account has not posted since her mother received a letter threatening to revoke her visiting privileges if she continued. She plans to keep fighting even after she's released. She doesn't want people to think that she's complaining. She said, I understand that I committed a crime and so I was sent to prison, but what happens when the prison is the one committing the crime? What is punishment? When is it enough? That was Ariana Espuru talking to WUFT reporter Katie Heisen about one woman's TikToks from prison. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandile, Ariana Espiru, and me, Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thanks for listening. <laughs>